Hello there, fellow scholar and gentlemen of virtual reality. Um, this conversation panel that I've had is going to be extremely exciting and juicy and full of um, non-bullshit. And I'm excited for you to come along and listen. Um, but before you do that, I have to apologize because I am a total audio noob. And it's going to sound a little bit off here and there with echoes and reverb. Um, so, sorry. I wish... Um, I don't wish. I will uh, work harder to make sure that the audio sounds better with the live events. But um, but it's a work in progress. And I thank you for listening and putting up with it. And I hope you have an awesome day. Thank you. See you in the metaverse. Welcome everyone, thank you for attending and allowing me to sponsor me for this event. 
Um, one of my, I actually, just I shared with Chris, I actually just signed on my first VR client uh, a couple months ago. We're doing VR. Um, and I had a bunch of them. They're awesome. Um, so definitely check them out. Spot for them. But um, at China, what we do is really, um, well, I'm curious by nature, so I want to know who in here has a vision or a dream for their company to be, or to be a business owner or entrepreneur, or is one right now? Okay, so the majority of you guys. Who in here actually dreams about payroll administration, HR, benefits, section 125? <laughs> Rarely does anyone raise their hand unless they're here and make fun of me. But <laughs> what we do is really to offload that burden off of entrepreneurs and um, owners. So we work with um, anywhere from a one-person company to 700-person uh, employee-sized companies to really make sure that you're taking care of the livelihood of your people. Um, what we do is we support and outsource, truly outsource HR, whereas everything is handled on that end so you can focus on your dream, your vision, what it is that you want to accomplish and create in this world or in this city, um, and with the people that are running with you and to be able to take care of them and provide for their families. Um, so we help out with that. If you have any questions, I'll be in the back. I have my whole cool little startup sweater today. Um, so just come and ask me. I'll stick around out as well after to answer any questions you guys may have around that and our services. So thanks again. Welcome, ladies and everyone. Thanks. Okay, so we're going to get this thing started. Uh, and I'm going to... First, start off by asking uh, my panelists to briefly introduce yourself, um, really quickly, and then, and then we'll start off with the questioning. How this is going to go, we're going to do 15 minutes of uh, panel chatting, and all the questions that are inside the premises in my mind, and then we're going to do 10 minutes of Q&A with the public, and then an hour of mingle and trying out the cool repo setup and demos that TK brought today. Um, so yeah, Anarchia, uh, let's, let's Awesome. Thank you for having us, Chris, and thank you everyone for coming. Uh, my name is Anardia Vardana. I am an investor at Rothenberg Ventures. We are based in San Francisco, but uh, invest all over the United States and even have a couple of international investments. We invest very heavily in virtual reality and augmented reality. We do invest in all technology sectors, but have a very strong thesis in VR and AR. Um, we launched the world's first program for the fastest growing VR AR startups. And our first class just completed on Monday and had their demo day. It was 13 companies. Thank you. Um, it was amazing. 13 companies across uh, six different industries from seven different continents. So it was a really humbling experience for us to learn and for them to grow together. And I'm excited to be here at Chat some more. Hi, my name is Jody Medich, and I'm a user experience designer. Um, just a consultant. Um, and I got started in VR. Um, with the Twiddler, which is a one-handed corded keyboard, and we designed it for Google Glass. After that, I went and I was the principal UX designer for HoloLens, which you might be familiar with. And then um, I just recently uh, left Leap Motion, where I was helping them to, I wrote their VR best practices and uh, did a lot of experimenting with um, how to create affordances and use motion to um, interact with VR content. Hi everyone, I'm Jasmine. Excuse me, I'm a cold, so I might like cough to think about So I'm a late technical artist at Discover. We're an educational VR company. We make a lot of content for schools. This can you hear me now? Uh, 
yeah, so we want to change the way students learn and put them in immersive learning environments. So instead of going to another country and learning, you can take a field trip somewhere else in your class with your fellow classmates, your teacher. It'll be fun once education changes. Hi everyone, my name is Natalie. I work as Jaunt, um, as the compositing supervisor in post-production. Uh, Jaunt is a startup that is growing fast and is developing a camera capture system to capture 360 video in stereo and stitch the images together and then create content and distribute the content with, with our player. And uh, we have a few the woman from John here tonight also in the room. Uh, four, four of them, I think. Where? 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 Nice. Uh, hold on to the microphone for now, Natalie. So, so we're, yeah, we're, let's get started with the questions. Um, what is it that you guys, and we'll go one by one, um, what is it that you're personally most excited to try as an experience, a virtual reality experience in the future? Um, and I'll start with Natalie and work my way down to that. Um, my interest in VR, uh, because I spent many years, about 12 years in, in film and VFX, was to get into interactive experience, something that you know, I can interact with. Um, and the, the experience I find the most compelling personally are the ones where you have an emotional immersion, not just a wahoo kind of experience. And you, you, know, you can connect. Uh, I would love in the future to you know, to be able to have an experience where I kind of participate in the life of someone else in another country, different culture, being able to experience, you know, how they think, how they feel, you know, like being able to have this, this, this connection. And the second thing that is really special about VR is your body feels that it's there. I've tried, you know, like some snowboarding apps and my legs were starting to move on their own and, uh, and, and there are some really an opportunity with you know what emotion is doing to be able to interact with your body and not with a game console or you know those kind of things. Cool. I am looking forward to the metaverse. <laughs> uh, I just I can't wait to be in another world and uh, you know like real life can suck sometimes so going somewhere else and being an avatar that really represents how you feel and interacting with others all around the world in the same place is going to be great and uh, that's, that's going to open a lot of opportunities to get creative you know, with others, so I'm excited to see what happens in the metaverse in the future. You might have opened a can of worms by asking me that question, um, but um, I am really excited about AR in particular. I think uh, VR is a stepping stone to get to AR, and what I'm most excited about is to eliminate interface as much as possible. So I work a lot on understanding how people understand the world, the real world, um, and I try to create technology that um, eliminates the technology of it all and instead looks at how we use our world, um, you know, the real world. And so one of the things I'm most interested in is once we get our digital world into our real world, right, our chocolate into our peanut butter and vice versa, that we can start to inform both worlds based on what's possible in both of those worlds. So if I can start to use my spatial cognition in my digital sphere, how awesome is that? And then um, if I can start to use the power of uh, dynamic um, everything that comes with 
technology in my real world, then I, I'm suddenly unlocked both of them in a way that's not possible in either. And so those are the kinds of things that I'm really excited about. Um, just a quick gauge with the crowd. How many of you have tried an immersive VR experience? Okay, cool. Almost all of you. Great. Um, what I'm most excited about in VR is things that are just not possible due to physical limitations in, in the real world. Um, and that could be anything from diving into the human body and you know traveling through an artery, seeing what a blood vessel looks like, seeing what my liver looks like, you know, whatever it may be, um, to rethinking some of the paradigms that we have in reality. I think, you know, oftentimes our framework is so you know, cemented in what we've learned and what we see around us and what our experience has been for the past 20, 30, 40, whatever years. Um, when I did the longest VR experience I've ever done, which was in, in the ballroom up in Seattle, I was in the experience for 45 minutes. And when I came out, I, for a few minutes, thought I could walk through the couch in front of me. And it was the weirdest thing. And I'm excited to do things like that in VR, just things that would not be possible, things that my current paradigm tells me, and are you cannot do this, I'm excited to do those things in VR. Very nice. Thank you for your answers. Um, uh, so, HoloLens had a huge showing today um, at the Microsoft event that uh, was going off in the news today. And that sort of brought the question to mind, you know, where, where is AR and VR, um, what is the relationship between AR and VR right now? Are we competing industries? Are we collaborating? Um, you know, how do we see the? You know, how do we see each other? And, and, and what do you think is going to be the future? Like, you know, in the next five years, which platform will be more predominant, VR or AR? Um, and I'll start with Natalie. I know it's a handful of questions, so. Uh, bear with me. Uh, yeah, I'm not an expert in AR, um, but I, I would say, you know, whatever is best for what you are trying to do, you know, each application is going to have different context. Whether it's educational, you might need some AR in the museum. If you want to learn to dive, you know, or, or jump from an airplane, this might be in VR. You know, like, whatever makes sense, so I don't see any competition. Just to follow up with you, is John doing anything augmented reality based that you are? Right now, no, to we around? are not. Right okay. now, it's full immersion. Okay. Yeah. I agree with Natalie. <laughs> I feel like VR and AR are separate. And uh, again, I'm, I'm not an expert in AR either. Um, yeah, I just I think it depends on the content that people want to make and the content people want to see. We'll see in the future how it goes, since both are still really early. I have a little different opinion. Um, <laughs> shocking. Um, anyways, uh, I think VR is always going to be an exciting experience to be fully immersed into some environment and not have the limitations of your real world and, you know, uh, imposed. However, I don't see VR as being the long-term viable play because I do not want to be in a blindfold. I just don't, it's not safe for me um, for a number of reasons. I don't want to run into things if I'm moving, somebody comes into my space uh, that's not so great and it's absolutely not good for a family environment in the home when I can't see anybody else around me and I'm just lost in my own little world. So I, I don't see 
VR as being the long-term play, but I always see it as being part of even an AR experience. For example, HoloLens does both, right? You can be fully immersed and you can also come out of your immersion into the real world and back again. And so I, I think that we'll see more of those types of experience in the long run. But um, for me, the things that are so exciting is that overlay into, or not overlay, but overlap between the two AR, um, AR sorry, some virtual and the real world. And so to me, I hope with all my might that it can merge into that direction. Um, yeah, I think all three of you had really interesting things to say, and I agree on, on different levels. I think that right now, the technology for VR is here. Um, it's ready to go. We have some amazing hardware that allows us to have awesome experiences in VR. I think AR is a much bigger challenge, and Jody said earlier, like, we're not, we're not there yet. It's a stepping stone, and I absolutely agree. Um, I am very excited for AR in order to have a digital overlay on my existing world, to be able to have information on the things I see, to be able to interact with my physical, realistic world with an additional overlay of technology. Um, and I think that each technology will have its own purpose. There will be reasons for me to be fully immersed. Maybe I want to be in House of Cards, watching my favorite TV show, actually being in my favorite TV show. But I think a large portion of my non-real experience will be an augmented reality because I think that it will be a part of my, my daily life. Very nice. Thank you for your answers. Uh, sticking to what Jody said earlier in terms of uh, some of the more uh, complex uh, obstacles facing VR is, is sort of this isolationism that you'll be able to that you might that you might you know get trapped into. Uh, and I'd like to know you know what can be done because here's the thing: VR in my mind has two major criticisms. One is it's, it's isolationism, and the other one is escapism. Um, and I'd like to know what you guys think are, you know, the biggest, any other bigger downfalls to VR, and perhaps, you know, are there any solutions to this? Can, can we solve the isolationism thing in VR? Um, is that a solvable problem? I don't know, and I'll start with our again. Sure, yeah, I've definitely heard those uh, criticisms and thoughts that people have. I... I think anything has the power to induce isolation and loneliness. I think VR is actually a really powerful tool to interact in ways that we didn't think possible before. Um, a lot of my family lives in India and I can Skype with them, I can talk to them on the phone. I am excited for the day where I can put on a headset and hang out with them and see my grandfather right next to me. So I think it allows for different ways of connection. We just have to think about what these creative ways are and and how to really leverage them to build a more closer knit world and to build better relationships. Um, even some of, our, some of our companies in our uh, river program, uh, one of them is called Vantage TV, and they allow you to experience a concert or a sports event with your friends. Instead of you know, going to AT&T Stadium and going to a Beyonce concert, you can put on the headset at home, and your best friends all across the world can do the same, and you can, you can be in there together. So I think uh, there's a lot of opportunity for, for connection. I think your other question was about what are other, other yeah. criticisms. Yeah. So, um, I think just like any other technology or any other uh, situation, there are always ways to exploit 
those that are disadvantaged, those that are marginalized in society. So um, I want everyone to be extra cognizant about how we are using the technology for making the world better, making people engaged, making people experience things that are positive that they wouldn't be able to do otherwise, rather than using it to um, do, say, child pornography or um, exploit people of color or things like that. I think my answer is going to reflect yours pretty clearly. Um, and I you know, I think I think every single device, including Google Glass, <laughs> was interrupting social interactions and isolating the wearer. Um, and I think that's going to be a problem as long as you have something on your face that blocks your eye lines. Um, you know, the reason why glasses don't get in our way is because I can clearly see where you're looking. I know what you're looking at. I know you're looking at me. But when I talk to somebody with mirrored sunglasses, I get furious because I can't tell where they're looking. I don't know where to look myself because I can't tell if they're looking me in the eye or if I'm being creepy by staring them down or what. And so I think those those are going to be problems for the near future with VR, especially the safety thing is a real big problem for me. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of paranoid when I'm home by myself anyways. And if I'm going to put this isolationist mask that has, you know, surround sound and can't see or sense anything outside of it, then it, it's really scary to me. Um, other other concerns that I that I think need to be voiced, especially in this early phase of devices, is in motion sickness. I am particularly susceptible to motion sickness, and VR in particular can make me very very ill. AR can also though, so I don't really think that. I mean, I, I've gotten sick in the Hololens before, so <clears throat> I don't think that's really. And I think that's a state of where we are as opposed to a bigger long-term problem. And I think all these problems with VR are, are short-term, not long-term, because there's already solutions with pass-through cameras that let me see what's going on in my real world and flip back, right? Like, we, we created a quick switch between virtual and, and real um, through cameras, but it's a little weird when you see through the cameras, so I don't know. That's, I don't know if I've added anything, but it works. <laughs> So for people being isolated in their immersive experiences, I feel like it depends on what they're doing, if it's okay, like hardcore gaming, you know, that's going to be a lot of fun, and people do that anyway at home, you know, sit for hours and play games. And with other, with other different types of applications, I feel like making it social will help a lot. For example, at Discover, like, people ask us all the time, isn't the student still going to be alone? And, you know, what's fun about that, learning in a different place? We're trying to make it social as well, so you can be with your other classmates in this world, and your teacher gets to monitor you. And um, yeah, so it, let's see. I, what was the second question? Yeah, you, personally, do you see any uh, obstacles to VR that most obstacles. people aren't talking about? Uh, no, I don't. I don't see any obstacles right now. Okay, yeah. sounds good. Yeah. We got an easy ride. <laughs> <laughs> Input. Um, yeah. Let's see. There are one or two things that you know I think might be dangerous about VR. So um, yeah. So there are one or two things that might be dangerous in my eyes about VR, which is it's an extraordinary powerful emotional media, even more than film, because you know it's not just your emotion; it's also your body that is involved, and that's why people can get sick, and you know that's why. Um, so, you know, given everything going on in the world right now, there is an extraordinary power for manipulating people if you want to 
So, you know, the only way to counteract that is to encourage more people to create content for VR that, you know, is going to try to create more connections, more understanding, this kind of approach. Um, because you can, do, you know, use any media for any purpose that you want. Um, yeah, that's one of my concerns. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Can I add one thing? I'd like you to do um, This is amazing trivial, but one thing that I think is definitely a risk is a health risk in terms of putting the goggles on and sharing them, um, getting yes. each other's skin and sweat and all those things. Exactly. I'm looking forward to a device that is sanitary or perhaps personalized. Um, I think some people got pink eye yes. from VRLA yes. from sharing a lot of headsets. So. Yeah. <laughs> Um, one other thing that I'd like to add in the short term is input. There yeah. is really no good input uh, mechanism for VR. Um, lots of people are trying. We've got everything from the nod, you know, the ring, to leap motion, what we were doing with gesture. You've got eye fluence and those folks trying to do eye tracking input, which I don't see working on its own. You get voice, but talking alone to myself in a dark room seems creepy. And then you've got the traditional keyboard, which I can't see. Um, so none of it's really great yet, uh, and that's a problem. What do you guys think is the most natural input solution for the near term for virtual reality? Do we need keyboards back in the game? No. No. What, what do you think? I think it's going to be something for the near term. Yeah. The stuff that the the Gear VR and some of those things where they have a an input mechanism on the device, like a trackpad or a button, I think is the most logical for the near term. Long, um, I also like the Nod a lot. I really like Nod. I think it's got a lot of potential. And I also, um, as as much as I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of the the size of the device, but six Sense is interesting as well. I think those are the most reliable in the near term. Maybe that's the same question. Do you have anything? Um, I think eye tracking will be very interesting, yeah. and um, not as the only. Not as the only, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but I think um, I love I love writing about some of our portfolio companies. So Vogue does eye tracking, and I think yeah. they, they do a really awesome job. Um, I've seen a demo where a kid who previously could not move his body is able to play the piano through eye tracking because he's able to look at each of the different keys which is really powerful, and um, I agree, I think it's going to be a lot of the body tracking, so Sixth Sense has some like the magnetic things you can attach to your ankles, so I think at the end of, end of the day, I do want my body to be in control, yeah. and we'll see how we get to that. So, we, so I asked about input in the short term, right? What, what is input looking like five years, five years from now? Um, what, where is eye tracking five years from now, and where is... Uh, neural input controllers right five years from now. I don't know if you guys heard of the iMind VR. It's this thing that uses EEG brainwaves that were at the last SVPR and you could think where you go and it'll like take you there in virtual reality. So you can be like Neo and bend the spoon um, inside virtual reality eventually. Um, and I'm wondering like you know you see eye tracking and you see these technologies in their in their birthplaces. And I, I'd like to know where you guys think the, those will be five years from now. Are they going to be? Am I going to be controlling the metaverse with my brain five years from now? What do you guys think? Um, I think that is where it's headed. Um, I forget the name, but I recently saw another company 
where you wear this headband thing and you're playing a game and it's all based on concentration. If you're able to concentrate, you're able to make the airplane fly. And if you don't focus, the airplane crashes down and it's tracking your rainways. And that was mobile. It was pretty incredible. You weren't hooked up to like a huge tethered wire thing. So I think it's definitely going in that direction, which would be amazing. We'd be able to will things into existence or motion. Um, I also think that natural language processing technologies are getting better and better and stronger. Natural language to the point of not saying like, okay, so you're even saying like, I really want to find gas right now that's cheap, that's near Starbucks, I've got coffee. And then it would tell you like where to go, what to do. So I think um, it'll be voice control, body control, and mind control. I'm still waiting for high-def haptics to come out, and I've been saying for about 10 years that it was two to three years out, so I'm, I'm not going to put any bets on the mind control for it in the next five years, um, just because I've been so disappointed. But um, I do see eye-tracking being a very near-term solution, like next couple years it will be, but I don't see it as the primary input. I find it more of, I think multimodal input is going to be the key, because you can't, we as humans don't interact with our world in one sense. Like, Right now, I am touching this thing, I'm talking into it, and I'm looking at you guys, and it's the combination of those three things that lets you know what I'm doing, right, and tells these things what I'm trying to do. And so we're going to have to think about this, think about sensing the whole human as opposed to, like, using one sensor to do things. So you're going to have eye tracking plus gesture plus voice plus uh, something yet to be determined. I don't know, something, so that you can triangulate what the user's trying to do, and then interpolate that into action in the digital sphere. So I see motion tracking, at least of the hands, and eye tracking being the primary near term, and then, well, my voice is already there, so, and then moving on from there. Cool. So you're saying I can lay there and use my brain to do whatever I want? Yeah. <laughs> that sounds so intense. It's going to be like Wally. Where everyone's just sitting in their chairs and just staring at the screen doing nothing. <laughs> Scares me. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it'll be more natural to still, you know, use your hands and any movement you can in front of you. Like, uh, I recently tried the Morpheus demo. It's just, like, two little sticks with buttons on it. And at first, it was weird. It was like, my hands are doing the shape here where it's, like, kind of almost a fist. But in VR, like, in the game, my hands are open. And it felt so natural after like 10 seconds after I forgot, like, oh, this is weird. It's like, oh my god, I'm in this world. Look at my hands. I feel like that's, that's going to be more popular, being able to use your hands, like, leap motion. We're actually starting a new project where we're using your hands to do some chemistry experiments. And, uh, yeah, I feel like that would be more natural. That I feel like that's what's going to be in all these applications. Yeah, we're already looking forward to body input. Even like biofeedback or stuff like that, you can measure skin temperature, you know, heart rate, and all those things. And um, but the thing that really strike me in VR is the the interaction between different senses. Because I don't know if some of you already had the experience, like you watch something or you play with something in your hand just visually in VR, and suddenly you feel it in your hand. Mm -hmm. It's like you have a tactile feedback, and in real life you have nothing in your hand. Or, you know, like, I'm in this helicopter ride and the, the helicopter is, is leaning and, like, my whole body wants to <laughs> lean with it. It's, it's just... And when you see, uh, like, interactive digital art nowadays, you know, with Kinect and 
and all those things. People want to move. They want to just use their body and interact in a natural manner. So for me, the most important yeah, is the body, the, the voice. I'm not sure. I, I hate those things telling me what to do. I'm telling to speak, you know, loud to a machine. So it's <laughs> does Siri understand your accent? I don't even speak Siri. <laughs> so so I feel like we're we're skirting around one of the many elephants in the room for virtual reality, and one of them that I see is you know, what what is the effect on the human brain. Um, of prolonged use of virtual reality, like how, what is that? What is it doing to our brains? What is it doing to our hippocampus, our amygdala, if at all, anything at all? Um, and I'd like to know what you guys think. You know, how as a community, how as, as an industry, how do we go about this? You know, evolving issue because I think that the research isn't here yet. You know, I I, I have I don't know any lab that has people doing virtual reality forty hours a week. You know. For Two years. I don't know because when I refer to prolonged experiences, I'm imagining you know my, the, the amount of hours my little cousin will be doing video gaming, you know, uh, in virtual reality. And, and again, uh, maybe I'm, I'm sounding old here. Like, are the kids ready for this? Is this is this going to you know mess with their brains? You know, what do what do we do? What, what's 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 happening here? Because because here's the thing. Like neurologically, something immediately is happening. You know, you get this sense of presence. Scale like nothing else has ever given you before, and all of a sudden you're in there. Um, and yeah, I just like to know what's what's happening to our brains. Uh, I read some study that was saying that virtual reality was kind of um, um, exciting. About fifty percent of the neurons that you usually use when you interact with the real world. So fifty percent of your 50% neurons. Fifty percent of the neurons, not one hundred percent of the, the neurons that you usually use when you. Just actually, so yeah. Um, but to me, it's already like we spend most of our time looking at flat screens, which is the most unnatural thing in the world. Our eyes have to focus on this flat screen at one meter, you know, when naturally we, we need to like change the, the, the convergence distance and all of this. So, actually, getting into VR is much more natural and, and should be less, you know taxing on our senses, what the, the limitations right now is more like the technology, the quality of the pixels, the quality of the 3D rendering that you see, and all of those things, because you know some of them are really crude. So once the technology evolves, I, I would expect that it's, it feels more natural than looking at a flat screen. So you're saying, Natalie, sorry to interrupt the flow. So you're saying um, VR is going to get so good that it'll just be indistinguishable from doing anything else, and it, and it won't have any effect on your brain um, compared to what you're already doing. I don't know if it won't have any effect, but it cannot be worse than what we are already yeah. doing to our brains. <laughs> What's happening to our brains? I have no idea. <laughs> I haven't done any research myself. Uh, I would like to talk about DeepStream, though. I know that I saw a presentation recently where they talked about how there is a patient who was in a lot of pain. I think it was a burn victim. And as soon as they're immersed in this virtual world, like their pain reduced significantly. 80%. 80%? It was crazy. I think they did like an MRI scan on the brain, and like you can just see clearly how much... How much it helps the, the person. 
no drugs, no surgery, just virtual reality, and they were getting 80% mm -hmm. pain reduction. reduction. That's, mad, that's madness. Wow. That's the future. So that's an example of what can happen to your brain. Yeah, that is. <coughs> a good. I know you have a lot of good facts and figures on this, so I'll be brief. But um, a lot of the research that we were conducting, um, I've seen, um, there's a few interesting studies. One is on children creating false memories based on virtual reality experiences. It's a fascinating study. Um, also, the third arm study, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there was a study, and I keep forgetting to look up who did it. Anyways, they were controlling, they were moving box, they were, it's a game where you move boxes, and the more limbs you have involved, the more quickly you can move the boxes, and so they start you off with one arm, and then they add a second arm, and then they add a third arm, um, and uh, it takes the user less than five minutes to figure out how to use their third arm, and then they're proficient, as if they're using their other two limbs. It's really remarkable. So um, I don't know what it's going to do. I don't think we even know what's possible. Because right now what's happening is I know that's in there. When I'm interacting with a computer screen, I know it's in there. When it's in front of my face, my brain's not doing that same thing. The other thing is that um, there's lots of studies that show that you can create spatial memories of spaces that you've visited in VR, not in the real world. So it starts to do this really interesting buildup of memories as if you're experiencing them in the real world. So I'm really excited about that kind of stuff. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm not a medical professional, so I don't know what the, what the brain results are, but um, so I was recently told that I have tech neck, which I'm sure many of us suffer from. Um, so technic is basically we are kind of like this all day or like this all day, and this is starting from a very young age because children as early as like I guess three or four are already on phones and iPads and doing this thing where our necks are bent, and it's really strange to me that we build, create this amazing dynamic world in a very static environment. And so I agree with Natalie that I think it will be pretty incredible when I can be fully immersed in and do my work in an immersed way. And even if that's augmented reality, I'm still going to be able to look straight ahead because it's, it's right in front of me instead of kind of being hunched over a device. Um, I think there will be you know, basic challenges of the physical world and the virtual world. And an example that I like to point to is my colleague's son tried to uh, expand on a paper magazine. He was like, Mom, it's not getting bigger. And she was like, oh, gosh. Um, and I think we'll have similar things where a kid will think that he or she can like walk through a table because they can in virtual reality, but they can't. Yeah, because I tried to, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think we will have those types of things. But I think that the, the power to learn, the power to expand creative possibility, um, the power to activate certain parts of our brain that we didn't really know existed or didn't really know were able to be exercised will be, will be amazing. And, and like Jasmine said, um, a company named DeepStream VR, they do pain management in virtual reality and have seen like 80% reduction in pain with zero tranquilizers, zero painkillers, which I think is really, really popular. It's so another, so kind of the big gist of my work is trying to enable cognition, human cognition, right? And one of the most important things that I focus on is embodied cognition, meaning that an embodied cognition basically says that 
we think with our entire body, like right down to our toenails. We um, think best when we engage our physical body into thought. And our number one problem with computers now is that your experience of the technology is this. Right? So you're not engaging your body at all. You're not processing thought. And that was one of the main reasons we worked on the Twiddler, because a lot of the Google engineers will have those <coughs> crazy little treadmill desks, and they were having a hard time coding on a keyboard and using the thing at the same time, but they found that the treadmill really helped them to think through their problems. And so we gave them this one-handed keyboard that they was specifically designed to be used while walking. And they had this huge increase in productivity. So to me, that's that's the kind of brain thing that I'm excited about because now I can engage into my technology and not be like. Along those lines, I just think like if you are working on a challenging problem and you want to vigorously attack the problem, the most you can do now is type harder. Yeah. But like if you're in VR, you can actually like engage your body. Yeah. You can get into it. You can work a sweat trying to solve a tough yeah. mathematical problem or something. Just amazing. And Arjay, just uh, you raised an amazing point earlier on uh, TechNet. I think uh, if you're a marketer, you're hoping to launch an advertising campaign and, uh, for a virtual reality company in the future. I think uh, making fun of people with TechNet will be a great way. Don't be a TechNet. Wear a virtual reality flash. <laughs> you know, all the kids at school they'll be teasing all you know. Except for the next train. Yeah, well, you, you go from one, one, one model graph to another. Um, but, you know, just a, a really bad idea. Um, all right, uh, so the, the next question I want to ask is, you know, more on this interaction design thing. Like, uh, to me, in my mind, I feel like the thing that is going to bring back or that is going to keep people coming back to virtual reality will be efficiency. If I'm able to do a task four times faster using virtual reality than I am on the regular paradigm, then I'm going to be very compelled to keep using this new paradigm. Um, and so with Jody, when she was saying, you know, when you're interacting with your media, you know, I'm sort of envisioning, you know, two ways of interaction. One where you'll have Fantasia or 2000 and you'll create things still fresh style, or we can have minimal input via eye tracking and mind tracking or whatever that is. And you're just chilling in your bed like Jasmine navigating the, the metaverse without moving a muscle. I mean, you know, of all those two, of those two paradigms, can we figure out which one it is that people will come back to using virtual reality for? What do you guys think? So, I think that there are multiple ways that virtual reality can allow us to do things more efficiently. I think uh, Discover is a great example of, instead of like reading a book, reading several chapters about something, you can actually just be in it and know the experience, and maybe you're reading about the Socratic method, so instead of reading several chapters about it, you just are there, and Socrates is using the Socratic method on you, boom, you got it. Um, so I think that is an added efficiency for learning. Um, I think that a lot of times we have trouble visualizing data and understanding what the data means and then how to really figure out like what, what piece of the data should be in what section, and I think that there is an opportunity to be fully immersed and move things and then have that full immersion, see where, uh, where where the information is and then what trends it's going towards. And I think you know, the final way, which I think is still related to the education piece, is there are so many concepts that are just tough to sink in that just don't click. Um, you know, I, I see three to five companies every day 
and they're pitching to me, they're talking about their company, if there was a way for them to immerse me in their building process or in the experience of their product or something in a virtual reality environment, I think I would learn faster, I would have deeper empathy for what they're building and potentially be able to uh, understand more where they're coming from. This is a special area of focus for me. So one of the experiments that I was working on at HoloLens, and you can see it in the videos, it's the one where the guy is putting the, he's in the kitchen and he puts the to-do list on the thing there. So um, I'm really interested in this idea of spatial cognition and how it impacts our productivity. And one thing that I, I'm really fascinated by is how space affects multitasking. So there's a number of studies that show that multi-mon scenarios where you can put different tasks on different monitors and simply move your head like this between the tasks improves productivity upwards of 40%, if not more. Um, and so then if we bring that into the virtual environment, right, that we get even better. It gets even better. Um, but the number one problem with our interfaces right now is that every time that, I'm in, that I have to do something with the interface, which is pretty much any time I want to move between tasks or take the next step in my task or anything like that, it causes an interrupt in my process, in my flow. And I don't know if you're familiar with interruption costs in engineering, but it can be really substantial. Um, and so I did a lot of studies on how many times you interact with the UI in basic tasks. And so, for example, when I was looking for a dress, I did 288 interactions with the, uh, the UI of either, like, next tab or something like that. And every time one of those happens, it costs me up to anywhere from 30 seconds to 30 minutes in interruption. So it's very disruptive to constantly have to be using this flat 2D plane to move between tasks that I can spatially arrange. One. Two, uh, data dimensionality. So you talk a lot about, like, it's hard to understand the data. Well, right now, in the real world, I can, this is, this is my favorite example. In the real world, I have more in peace than a blank piece of paper sitting on my desk. I can look at those and I know instantly the difference between them. I just look at them and I'm like, oh, that's War and Peace and that's a blank piece of paper. That's a big weighty tome that has a lot of effort involved and this is a blank piece of paper. Totally different things. When I look at those same two objects in digital space, I see two icons of the exact same size and shape. They may have some different color. <coughs> I have to bring all the information with me to that. There's no way for me to tell that warm piece is big and heavy and weighty and the blank piece of paper is not just by looking at their icons. I have to know what they are and I have to know why they're different and I have to know what's, what that's about. So in, in VR, I can create dis, uh, dynamic dimensionality so I can see those two objects in very different ways. I can say, show me or tell me the thing I spent the most time on and the thing that I most recently opened, right? And I can give parameters, like define the X in one parameter and the Y in another, and suddenly I have a dimensional object that I can look at. And then I can say, you know what? I want to use a different parameter on X and a different one on Y, and it dynamically changes all the objects and they seem to be different dimensions. So we can start to think about how to become much more effective by using VR in a way that that would never be able to do, right? Like, when we took the leap motion from the PC into VR, it was instantly way more usable. And it, I think you just kind of, it just, 
everything I've heard has gone like that. So. so you're talking about making, creating these things with all the data, right? I think that's something that will bring people back to VR. That, that was your question, right? Like how to get them back. Yeah. I think having people feel like they're in control, of, like no matter what it is, even if it's controlling data or being able to have something in this world with you that you're in charge of, having the person feel like they have that power is definitely going to bring them back. Um, my personal point of view as an artist and uh, you know a creator is like if you can get people to create in VR and have really a lot of fun and share what they're creating. Because I'm not sure I want to spend all my office time in VR, but uh, yeah, so being able to do things that you couldn't do in the real world would bring people back to VR. Can I add to that? Very cool. Uh, we'll, we'll go ahead, please. please. Okay. Please, sorry. Yeah, controlling creativity. Uh, so SolarX, they, I saw one of their demos that they have like a, you can make shapes in these virtual worlds so you can draw like a cube. That's like a perfect example of control and creativity. So allowing users to be able to make these things themselves, that's what's definitely going to bring me back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I keep saying, you know, I, keep, I tell people, like, look at Tiltbrush. Um, Tiltbrush yeah. will be a killer app. I yeah. think. Um, it's why they got acquired by Google not too long ago. So, yeah. Um, let's, uh, let me ask you another question. You know, how, if, do we want more women in virtual reality? And not just as consumers, but as creators. And if we do, how do we go about accomplishing that goal? I'll start with Natalie. That's a one-hour question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have, I have five minutes left before we go to Q&A. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, we want more women in VR, that's for sure. Because right now there are so few, like not even 10%. <laughs> I think that's how it was. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I started working, you know, in computer science like 20 years ago, and then it went up, and now it's down again. And that's how it was when I started to work in VFX, and, and you know, then it went up to like maybe 25, 30 percent, depending on the companies. And and when you look at the media, because this is a new media, most of the media nowadays, whether it's newspaper you know, TV, online, web, is created by white men. When you look at what happened at the Oscars, you know, lately, this is, like, totally unbelievable. But there were only, you know, uh, men that were nominated and, and all of this. So, and even when you look at the statistics of so-called, you know, feminine topics, um, female topics being covered by the news, they are covered by male. Mm. And they interview more male experts on those topics than female experts. So it's like, this sort of bias has been there for years and years. So this is a new media. If we just keep applying, you know, the same stuff that we have been doing right now, it's just going to go the same route. Nothing is going to change. And... Um, how do we bring more women? That's a very good question because there are many factors right now, bias and educational and you know, in the workforce, in the culture of the world that prevent or discourage women even once they are in it and they drop more than men, they drop out. So yeah, you have to 
make a conscious effort and policy, both at the educational level and in the you know culture at work, to to you know bring women in and to keep them. That's the other thing. I feel like we should talk more about VR to everyone that's not already in the bubble of VR. Like in Under the River program, there's already a lot of women in the office. So I just feel like showing it to everyone, you know, I'm sure like women, men, young, old, everyone's going to be interested if they're into tech, you know. Let them, let them explore VR, you know, show them some tools and get creative with everyone. I think that's a way to bring more women in, just being more open with gotten into a lot of um, discussions about this topic. Um, in fact, I was told that the only way to get women into VR is if we create shopping. Um, <laughs> that's all women do. That's all we do is we shop. We shop. We just want to shop. And drink wine. And drink wine. I don't, I don't, I don't drink wine. Um, and I make my own clothes. So, um, um, but so here's the thing. Um, there's two sides to this topic. One is, how do we make VR beneficial to women so that they want to have VR? And the, and this thing that I keep talking about, this spatial cognition thing, is particularly beneficial to women. Um, adding spatial um, uh, indicators, such as lighting cues and spatial um, constructs, improves female experience of technology Many fold, like astronomically, two hundred percent improvement. Crazy. It improves male experience about twenty percent. Why is that? <clears throat> Women tend to think more spatially. For example, um, if you there's there's actually some interesting studies out about how women think spatially. So, for example, it's kind of a trite example, but when you ask a woman for direction, she's most likely to tell you to turn left at the gas station, turn right at the right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, women are also more likely to do things like put things by their keys so that they remember to take them with them, those kinds of things. Um, so, and men are more likely to explain to you the street names, and they tend to tell you very, um, uh, in two miles turn right as opposed to at the gas station turn right. So it's, it's just a different, I don't know why, it just is. Um, um, so women think spatially, so if you can improve spatial cognition of digital devices, you're going to exponentially improve their experience of technology in general, all up. Like, your phone has that, has like trays for different, right? You have like, your home screen usually has three or four trays that you can swap between, and you can park things on those different trays and move between them very quickly. Um, women tend to use that more than that. I don't know. I, so these are just interesting statistics around space and women. So I think that um, just by the act of creating these more spatial experiences, we're going to draw more women into technology and devices. But at the same time, it's important to recognize that women are the number one buyers of new devices for many reasons. Number one, they tend to be the purchasing power for the family, so they're buying devices for their children, their parents, etc. So I think you already are going to see an uptake in women purchasing technology. Whether or not they're using it or not is another question. As far as getting more women into the development of VR, I think that we're going to have a big problem. Um, 
as Natalie was saying, it, because it's not just about VR, it's a systematic problem. I, I am continually the only woman in the room. I'm often thought of, and because of that, unfortunately, I, I know this is crazy considering it's 2015, but I am often thought of as the assistant who came with the guys as opposed to the person that the guys are assisting. This has happened to me numerous times. I used to own my own studio, and I actually got sat at a separate table because they thought I was the administrative assistant. Um, to my employee, the designer. Um, and it was very frustrating. And then even, uh, but let's focus just on the VR environment. Because it's such a class, it's such a niche of technology, there's not a lot of people doing it to begin with. The people that are doing it tend to be pretty hardcore geeks, developer, engineers, thank and props, because thank you. Um, and so, and then you've got a lot of gamers getting involved. So you're getting this ever smaller, smaller, smaller group of people, and it tends to be mostly male. And um, I personally have had very recent experience of um, straight-out sexual harassment on the job. So these things happen very frequently, and so I don't think it's as simple as saying, well, we need to open it up to more women. There's a systemic problem that we have to address, and I don't know that we have an answer. Um, but it's definitely a problem. I have an answer, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, let me, just, sorry, let me just say that Kicker Studio, my company, was all women. It was three women founders, um, and it, we had almost all female support staff, um, and it was it was really rare. Uh, people were shocked when they would come to our studio. They would remark on it. It was wow. that different. That's awesome. Do you want to say No, please, you go first. Uh, first of all, I'll answer your question, which you asked earlier, which is, is this event good, is it necessary, and the answer is yes, yes. Um, and then I think the three of you covered a really big portion of what I was going to say, and you nailed it, like this is bigger, the problem is bigger than VR, it's in technology, it's in venture capital, I too am yeah, very yeah. often um, <laughs> the only woman in the room, and I too very often get asked, like, oh, so who's the investor who's going to be in the meeting? I'm like, no. <laughs> um, and I too get asked to take notes. To do that. It, it, yeah, and it happens a lot. I'm very lucky that I work with amazing men and women in, at my firm who are uh, very egalitarian, and I don't feel that weird sense of being the only girl in the room in, in those settings, but in external settings, it definitely happens a lot. Um, to me, I mean, it's definitely a conversation that needs to happen, but it's almost silly because. We are building technology experiences, products for 50% of the population, and how come they're not represented in the actual people who are building it? And like Jody said, the environment is unfriendly, if it's scary, if you feel like you're going to be mistreated, why would you want to go? And I was you know, glad to hear Jasmine say that um, in the River Program, there are a lot of women, so you feel friendly, you feel welcome, you feel like I'm not the only one who looks a certain way. Uh, but I think the problem extends even, even beyond women. Like, we need to make sure that we have underrepresented minorities who are working on virtual reality, the LGBT community, because if we don't have diverse thought in producing VR content and VR hardware, we're going to have one very stagnant type of content and one very stagnant type of hardware. It's not going to appeal to the masses. It's not going to reach the level of adoption that we all hope and want it to reach, and, and that's silly. So in order for VR to really take off, we need diverse minds working on it, and I think it's a responsibility that all of us bear to make sure that that diversity feels inclusive, feels a part of the team, and doesn't uh, become subject to discrimination or you know, condescension or things like that. 
So thank you for listening to that. I think it's important to bring these conversations to the forefront. And you excited for your solution. Yeah. Uh, Could so I add something quick? Yeah. Please, please, please. Yeah, please. yeah I, I just wanted to point if there are any women in the room you know, looking for a job, uh, if there are any women in the room looking for a job, we have um, our VP of Operation, Prabhat Krishna, or John, who is here, and you know, we need to hire lots of engineers. John is hiring. There you go. Woo! Woo! <laughs> <I'm hiring for laughs> <an engineer. laughs> awesome. Uh, I'll get back to you. What do you? What do you do? What? You're hiring for what? I'm hiring for an engineer position. I have a team that's all male right now. I'm trying to diversify. I really love to hire women, but I'm having a screaming hard time finding candidates. So okay. Well, thank you for yeah. coming out here. Um, you uh, after we do this, and then, yeah, we'll, we'll wrap it up right now. Um, I'll hold on to that. Uh, so, uh, lastly, so my solution is simple. Um, we have the technology. We have this thing called an empathy machine. Um, and what is it that men, you know, are, are missing? And this is a crazy idea because it's a fucking crazy problem. Let's be honest. It's a problem, and it's crazy. Even figuring out how, how, trying to figure out how insane it is. You have to come up with something insane itself. Um, so what we do is we uh, get the hierarchy of you know any person who's in power, and then we put in a VRHMD on top of that, and they are a woman for the next 72 hours. And I don't know; they can't take it off. Um, and it's making, we gotta make sure that we do it at Guantanamo Bay, and then the world will change forever after that. But I think it would be interesting, though, to play with empathy. Um, you know, uh, VR is going to do that, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, well, there, there is actually a VR app where uh, you can be in the body of a woman if you are a man or the opposite. Yeah. It was an interactive app. It, it's using both like a camera on top, filming an actor who is there in front of you. Mm. And um, and it's filming you. I mean, I don't remember exactly how it works, but basically you are exchanging bodies. Wow! And uh, that's. <laughs> yeah. I, I look forward to going home and trying that out and having creepy thoughts in front of the mirror. Uh, so yeah. let's uh, let's bring things to a close. That was an awkward way of closing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was hoping it was going to get under. Uh, so five questions from the crowd. Anyways, and before we even do the five questions, please. Uh, We've been for your Should we give you the mic? Yes. Oh, sorry, I'm We're 30 seconds. My name is Professor Ashram Prashant. Um, we're definitely looking for more women. I mean, there's no question about it. And I think one of the biggest issues, just like any other company in the technology, right? We can hardware software and we produce content, right? And all of that, when you combine it, you end up with the same issues that other technology companies are, are facing. The biggest issue for us, as my colleague that mentioned, is the pool.
you know, like I said, I'm hiring. I run a small video game studio. We're just down the street, up the street, and I have six people currently all in. And I'm trying to hire an engineer. I'm trying to grow my team this year, and I would really like to hire a woman to help diversify uh, my staff. I'm having a really hard time finding candidates, like almost any. I don't think I've seen a single resume from a woman. And uh, my hiring practice has been working my network. I've been working in the game industry, and that's served me well, but. Finding women candidates is not, so I'm looking for, uh, although the systemic problems are probably vast and difficult to solve, what I'm looking for is a practical advice today to find good female candidates for uh, the roles that I'm trying to hire in, and I'm wondering if the panel had any advice on that. So look into different places. Um, you have a lot of organizations in the Bay Area. You have women who code, who have women in tech. You have like several of those, and you can post jobs, and you know they, they might not be in your gaming network, but they are there. There are like at least five thousand women in tech in the mid of the Bay Area. Anybody else? Yes, yes. So I went to the R Institute, and there's there's women in the visual game programming degree area. You can you can look into the local universities and see. You know, talk to them about the women who are coding and stuff, and see if there's any women there who are interested in your in your work. Hmm. Snatch up a student; they're gonna come to cheat. I know, I don't talk to them. Yeah, <laughs> look at Hackbright too. Yeah, get the women dev boot camp type of thing. Cool. Next question. <laughs> hey, um, so we're designing VR experiences with our technology. Yeah, the way the way VR works is that. Doesn't really care about gender or age, um, so half the people using it are women. Um, so, what can we do uh, to design experiences that, uh, you know, for women too? Um, I guess one of the things we really don't want to do is design experiences that men think are for women, um, which is probably, it seems like that's the most likely thing we're going to do unless, um, you know, we. Figure something else out. Um, so, designing, uh, so big OEMs consider um, anything above 10% women as your target audience as being designed for women. <laughs> <laughs> Just so you know. Um, I'm not kidding. Um, <laughs> but uh, designing. In that situation, designing for women is similar to designing for men. You just want to design something that works really well without a lot of extra crap involved in it. You also want to test it on women and see if, because it's hard, you can't really just say, like, if you do these things, it's going to make it female-friendly. It's not. There's no magic pill. Making it pink is not going to suddenly make it work. Creating a shopping app is not going to suddenly make it work, right? So... It's just as much about, it's about including the female user as one of your primary use cases and really focusing on that person when it comes to testing out your application, when it comes to getting feedback about your application, and making sure that they're actually represented in, in your tests. Because what happens a lot, at least in my experience, what's happened a lot is that men are the primary builders of it. They've got me there, so I, I speak up as the voice of the female, but I have my point of view. I'm not, I'm not a lame user. I'm a you know, user experience person. 
Um, and then what happens is that we try to recruit people to come in and test it out so that we can learn from users. And the majority of the users that come in to test tend to be male. And so we're not ever really addressing the females, and we're not ever really getting feedback from the females. So not only do we have a male-driven process, but then we have male testing, and then we have digital or data that we're building, refining off of that's all male input. So just involving women into the process is the way you design for women. Yeah, those are all excellent points. And um, one thing I would add for anyone developing uh, VR experiences for women is, is even thinking about uh, the pretty average female experience. So women may, I don't know if this is true, but they tend to have smaller like skulls than men. So what does that mean for where we're looking within, within the experience? Um, I've done probably over 800 demos now of, of VR with a Samsung Gear headset, and more often than not, ever, more women are likely to say no because they don't want to mess up their makeup because women wear makeup more often than men do. So even like little things like that can make a difference. Um, also, more women are saying, "Oh, I, I don't, I got my hair done for this event. I don't want to mess up my hair." So even thinking like that, like those are strong like gender stereotypes, but it just so happens to be that women wear makeup more than men do, and wearing a gear headset is, is going to mess up your makeup more often than not. So just thinking through those things as well. Very cool. Anybody so just for the controversy, I'm going to tell you what um, some apps that were developed for women that women really use. Primarily? Really, really, really yeah. Um, so recently there was a UN woman hackathon around the world that was done in India, in New York, in Auckland, in different parts of the world. And mostly what those women developed as apps were safety, personal safety for women. Some of those girls in Auckland developed an app on the iPhone for reporting uh, in the streets where it was safe to be, mm. you know, where they noticed something dangerous happening to let their other friends know and, you know, those kind of stuff. The, the girls in India, they developed a safe-to-use and friendly sex education um, website with, with counseling and stuff for girls that they don't get, you know, usually. So, you know, those things are stuff that interest women. Shopping apps. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm proud we got through this whole conversation without talking about VR shopping. Um, any more questions? Any more questions? VR shopping or otherwise? I saw a hand over there. I did too. You put your Jason Marsh. Here we go. Last question. So I've been having fun with your VR, basically putting on, on everyone, on 90 year olds all the way down and uh, Last night, where there was there was a dance kind of event, so there was a lot of women, but some men too. And also, I have a seventeen-year-old daughter. I put on all our friends. Um, it's, it's it's the thing. And the women, my experience is that women and girls are more touched by the experience. Um, and I'm wondering, if you, and we're talking about they look at they're looking at the standard here they are kind of apps, the um, clouds under Sidra, so the the um, uh, Iraqi or Syrian refugee camp in Iraq, and of course cloud play, and but also just the um, the train, the the, the uh, introduction to verse, you know, that. So those are the kinds of things that people are, are experiencing. So I wonder if you have any ideas or comments about that. Like it's very emotional, impactful, 
experience VR, and I'm wondering if that means that all I'm studying otherwise are girls to be engaged in, uh, in technology because of this, or, or what? Maybe you can slide in Um, first of all, awesome for demoing. I, I'm a huge demoer myself. Um, I think your question, your question was like multifaceted. One, I think yes. I think giving a lot of young girls and women demos in VR opens up a new mode of communication and information perception and consumption that previously didn't exist. So I think it opens up a lot of ideas for possibilities and how you can engage with this technology, how you can work on it. I was on a panel on Neiman Marcus for a talk on technology and fashion, I was talking about virtual reality, and one of the young girls afterwards came up to me and she was like, you know, I, I really love art, and I really, you know, I, I don't want to do traditional visual art because I feel like it is not doing justice to art, but VR sounds really awesome because you can actually be in it, you can look at my artwork from every single angle. So that was, that was really inspiring, so I think it's amazing for that. Um, and then another question, I guess, I don't even know if this was a question, but the, the emotional piece. I think Cloudsurface Syndrome is such a powerful piece, and I think it, that it's, it's a story of a girl, so it really touches women. Um, I, too, have noticed women engage more emotionally with VR content, um, even if it's not something emotional. And my hypothesis is that we just have very strong social norms around how men and boys should react, and there is this like stigma like, oh, you can't be... Yeah, because I, I think, you know, a simple example, if you see a puppy, a girl will say, oh, and a guy will be like, cool. So I think that there is just like stigma around how men should express emotions. I think that's probably what's driving it. I don't know if there's a different click in the brain for women in VR. Maybe there is. I was going to say it's just that. But yeah. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. I guess this is it. Uh, thank you so much for coming and talking to my panelists. Uh, <laughs> I'm talking to